we're in Romans 15, starting in verse 23. We're going to do 23 to the end of the chapter. Uh, just to let you know, as I was preparing this study, honestly thinking that we were just going to do kind of a, a neat little wrap-up and close-up of Romans, uh, there was so much here that just started coming out as I was just praying over it that I started to realize, wow, well, I hope we get done tonight. I'm going to tell you that right now. Uh, so we, we need to get going here. Uh, verse 23, remember where he just left off? He had talked about how it was his ambition to preach the gospel where no, uh, no, uh, Christ had not been known, so he wouldn't build on someone else's foundation. Well, he said, now there in verse 23, no more place for me to work in these regions. And since I've been longing for many years to see you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to visit you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I've enjoyed your company for a while. Now, however, I'm on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the saints there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. So, after I have completed this task and have made sure that they have received this fruit, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessings of Christ. I urge you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service in Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints there, so that what, by God's will I may come to you with joy, and together with you be refreshed. The God of peace be with you all. Amen. Now, what we're going to do tonight is we're going to take a look at what he's talking about here, and we're actually going to study what actual ha actually happened. And as we do, you're going to find that some of the things that he was asking them to pray for him about didn't happen. Or at least didn't happen the way he asked them to pray for them. Pray for him and all. It's going to be a very interesting study as we take a look at what went on from here. So we're going to start off with this question. Did Paul ever make it to Rome to visit this church? Does anybody know? Does anybody have any ideas? Paul's lifetime this was. Well, that we're going to do where this is in Paul's lifetime is um, actually what we're going to start looking at happens in the late 50s, early 60s in the in, in AD. The answer to that question is yes, he made it to Rome. Actually, from scripture and from Christian tradition, he made it to Rome twice. Um, there's some debate in some circles as to whether or not he made it to Spain. The early church fathers say that he did. Now, in Scripture, we don't have recorded they'd ever made it to Spain, but early church fathers say that he did, and we're going to take a look now at what happens. Paul says to them, I want to go to Spain and preach the gospel there. On the way there, I want to stop by and see you Christians in Rome. But before I go to you in Rome, I want to go to Jerusalem, though, and bring a gift to the Jewish Christians there that these other churches have given, these Gentile Christians have given me, to give to the poor, the poor in the church there in Jerusalem. Now, he said, pray that I'll have a good time there in Judea, because it's not they're not real fond of me back in Jerusalem. And you, you would understand why. The, the Jews hate him now, because he was one of their best Jews, and he was persecuting the Christians. Now, he's one of those Christians. You know, at the same time, a lot of the Jewish Christians don't like him either, though, because he's been preaching to the Gentiles. And you know, the Jewish church, uh, Christian church, started sending people down to the Antioch church and saying, well, they're not really Christians unless they're circumcised and follow the law of Moses. And that whole dispute arose in Acts chapter 15 between Paul and Barnabas and the Antioch church and the Jerusalem church. And then at the same time, there were still Jewish Christians who were devout followers of the law of Moses, and they wanted Paul put to death. So you get the Jews who wanted him put to death because he was preaching Christianity. You got the Jewish Christians who wanted him put to death because he wasn't following the law of Moses and he was preaching to Gentiles and <clears throat> excuse me, not having them follow the law of Moses. He knew going back to Judea might be a little bit tricky, so he said, pray for me. So what we're going to do is we're going to go to Acts chapter 21. Put a bookmark here. We won't be back to Romans for a little bit. Uh, Acts 21, we're going to um, kind of catch up to where Paul, how this journey went. Alright, now, in Acts 21, starting in verse 17, you'll see it says in a lot of your Bibles, on to Jerusalem. Okay? Now, if you have a study Bible and you look at the different missionary journeys of Paul, you know, have maps and it'll give you a colored line of the different trips. This is what we're looking at is what we call the third missionary journey, if you will. Uh, but he had more after that. 
they just we don't have them recorded in Scripture, but they're referenced in Scripture, and we'll get to that in a little bit. In Acts 21, starting in verse 17, uh, it says, When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and the elders were present, and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through this, his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God and they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. This is the law of Moses. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? Now, first of all, is this accusation true? No. Wasn't. He was just simply telling the, the Gentiles they didn't have to be circumcised in order to be a Christian. It was by faith alone. Now the word is spread that he's telling Jews they don't have to be circumcised either. Kind of a thing. So they said, what shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. And so do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. This is one of the Mosaic laws, if you will. A Nazarite vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everybody will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. Now the next day Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. We're not going to go into the detail of this, but this is a, a, a Nazarite vow. It's a kind of a purification rite. It's a law of Moses kind of a thing. And it was a very public thing because if you did this, what did you do? You shaved your head. And everybody knew that you were fulfilling this vow. So they said, tell you what, we've got four men that are going to do this. Why don't you go with them? Why don't you do it? Why don't you pay for it? And then all the Jews that are here that are Christians and Jews will find that, look, he's following along the law of Moses and they'll leave you alone. That was their hope. What happens next? In verse 27, when the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Men of Israel, help us. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple area and defiled this holy place. Now they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple area. They didn't see that actually, they just put, they, they assumed it, and so they started accusing him of this. The whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that, whole, that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some of the crowd shouted one thing and some another, and since the commander couldn't get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great that he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd followed and kept shout the crowd that followed kept shouting, Away with him. This does this sound a little familiar? Didn't this what happened to Jesus when he was in Jerusalem? All of a sudden the crowd just all decided to put it to death and and uh, in this instance, the, the crowd is doing it themselves, when before it was the Sanhedrin and all that had him arrested by the Roman soldiers and all. But in this situation, they were trying to kill him themselves with their bare hands. The Roman soldiers showing up is what stopped it from being happen from happening, yet they still wanted him dead so bad that actually um, the soldiers had to carry him. Now, we're not going to read on here. I'm going to skip over, but follow with me here. We're going to follow the trail of Paul. Paul then speaks to the crowd. He turns to the commander and says, Hey, can I just speak to the crowd? Which is kind of cool. Instead of saying, Get me out of here, uh, he, he actually wants to preach to them. Uh, he does. He, he preaches to them. And then uh, in verse 21 of chapter 22, Then the Lord said to me, Go, I'll send you far away to the Gentiles. He told his whole story to them. They all listened. But the moment he said, I'll send you to the Gentiles, uh, in verse 22, the crowd listened until that point, and then they all said, "Have him beaten." And they're about to. And this is the story where they're about to have him beaten. And he turns to the Roman soldier and said, "Hey, are you allowed to be a Roman citizen without a trial? You've heard me talk about that." Uh, and so now go to Acts 28. Actually, we're, we're, we're going to end up there, look you know, study-wise. Actually, we're going to go to 25, but follow along. Uh, he's uh, he, he goes before the Sanhedrin there at the end of 22. 
And there's a plot to kill Paul. What that is, is they decide that since he's under the Roman guard right now, they're going to have him, put him in, bring him to Jerusalem for trial. And as they go to bring him to Jerusalem for trial, they're going to have him put to death. All right? And, and, and so one of Paul's relatives, actually, a nephew or someone, hears of this and gets the word to him, and he gets the word to the commanders, and they send him away out of Jerusalem to Caesarea. Caesarea, you see, in the end of chapter 23, uh, chapter 23, verse 23, he's now transferred to Caesarea. Then he goes on trial before Felix in chapter 24, and now, again, we're going to see a trial before Festus. Now, I want us to look at verses 1 through 12 here, because this is also key to what's going to be going on. It says, three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and the Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. They urgently requested Festus as a favor to them to have Paul transferred from Caesarea back to Jerusalem, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me and press charges against the man there, if he's done anything wrong. After spending eight or ten days with them, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he convened the court, and ordered that Paul be brought before him. Uh, when Paul appeared, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many serious charges against him, which they couldn't prove. Then Paul made his defense, I've done nothing wrong against the law of the Jews, or against the temple, or against Caesar. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court, where I ought to be tried. I have not done any wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. After Festus had, Festus had conferred with his counsel, he declared, You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you will go. Now, where does Caesar, where does Caesar live? Rome. He's in Rome. All right? So, as we follow the trail a little bit now here, Festus consults with Agrippa. Uh, then he goes, Paul speaks before Agrippa. Uh, and again, retells his story over. Paul's getting the chance to preach to all these people. Crowds and Romans and soldiers and kings and, and, and governors and regents. And you see in chapter 27, he sails for Rome. Of course, as you know, if you know the story, the boat gets shipwrecked. They have it up on the Isle of Malta. Uh, after they leave Malta, in chapter 28, verses um, 11 through 16, we see, after three months we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered in the island. Uh, it was an Alexandrian ship with the figurehead of the twin gods, Castor and Pollux. We put in at Syracuse and stayed there three days. From there we set sail and arrived at Regium. The next day the south wind came up, and on the following day we reached Petolii. And there we found some brothers who invited us to spend a week with them. And so we came to Rome. The brothers there had learned that we were coming, and they traveled as far as the form of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. At the sight of these men, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. When he got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. All right? So... You see now what falls after this is that Paul preaches under guard at Rome. Look at the last two verses of the book of Acts, verses 30 and 31. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul now is in Rome. He's there now for two years. This whole trial before Caesar thing, we don't know really how that all plays out, but he's... He's under guard, he's, under, he's, he's in an imprisonment, but it's actually an apartment or a house. He's got a Roman soldier there. People are allowed to come and, and treat him and well, and they bring stuff, things to him. So for those of you that like this kind of thing and want to write this down, let me just give you a couple things. Uh, in the, in, around the year 60 to 62, or when he's probably in this Roman first Roman imprisonment uh, here in Rome, and he wrote these four books from this apartment or this house. Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians and the book of Philemon. All right, I'll say that again. He wrote Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon in around 60-62 uh, A.D. in this first imprisonment in Rome. Then he, in years 62 to 64, he wrote 1 Timothy and the book of Titus. And in 67-68, in his last, he, it was there was another Roman imprisonment. We could tell from. Not from scripture as much as church tradition, but he was imprisoned again uh, in 67, 68, around the time of the death of Nero. Chances are he died right before the death of Nero. And 2 Timothy was written from 
that road in imprisonment. Now, if you remember, Paul wrote at the end of his, his book of 2 Timothy, uh, I'm about to be poured out like a drink offering. He knew that the time of his departure had come. Well, in the books, 1 Timothy, Titus, and 2 Timothy, Paul references places that he visited that aren't recorded here in the book of Acts. So there must have been a time that he was released from this imprisonment in Rome. And he went and saw these places. The early church fathers like Origen and others, they say that he did make it to Spain. So he went and traveled and supposedly he did preach in Spain. Eventually ends up though back in jail in Rome and is put to death in Rome. And so did he make it to visit the church in Rome? I would assume yes, but probably not in the way that he intended because he was hoping to go see them on their turf. They had to come see him on his turf, but it was still in Rome under Roman guard and all. But keep in mind, there wasn't a big church, First Baptist of Rome building, you know. You remember that they were, they were, this was the church, the believers in Rome who were meeting in the homes and getting together and all that kind of stuff. And that will make a lot more sense when we get to chapter 16. So all that to say, Paul's intention was to go visit them. He wanted to go to Spain, but he said, hey, pray for me, because I know it's going to be a little bit bumpy in Judea. Well, he asked for them to pray. I'm sure they did. But it appears that God's answer was no on sparing him the bumpy time in Judea, right? Have you ever asked God for something or asked people to pray for you? And then it appears the answer was no? Yeah. Now, we can try to figure out all from hindsight. We'll look at all the good that came out of it and all. Sometimes, folks, it helps just to say, I don't know why, but God's answer was no. We only want to accept it if it makes sense to us. A lot of times when someone dies and we, we didn't want them to die, and then someone gets saved at the funeral, we, we try to comfort ourselves by, well, you know, at least so-and-so got saved. You know, if it has to make sense to you before you accept it, it's not faith. Sometimes you're going to have to just say, I don't know why he said no. I still don't know why he said don't know why he said no. But he's God, and I'm not, and his ways are perfect, and I'm just going to keep going forward in faith. Don't have to make it make sense. We can sit here and try to come up with all these spiritual reasons why thought prayer wasn't answered. Don't do that. And I'm going to now take you to something that's very interesting that happened just before uh, all this that we read. Go back to Acts chapter 21 and look at verses 1 through 14. I just really feel like we need to deal with this. Especially with what's going to be coming on in our country in the, in the years to come if Jesus tarries and might even something might even happen this year. In Acts chapter 21, look at verses 1 through 14. You see on your notes, he's on his way to Jerusalem. After we had torn ourselves away from them, in verse chapter 20, he had just met in Miletus with the Ephesian elders on his way to Jerusalem. He just The elders from the church in Ephesus came and met him. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes, and from there to Patara, we found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo. Finding the disciples there, we stayed with them seven days. Now look closely. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. But when our time was up, we left and continued on our way. All the disciples and their wives and children accompanied us, accompanied us out of the city, and there on the beach we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship and they returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemais, where we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven. Who, that's the Philip who was, like, we called him the deacons in Acts chapter, chapter 6. After he, uh, sorry, he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? 
I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. Now look at verse um, 4 again in chapter 21. Finally, disciples there, we stayed with them seven days, and through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Then this prophet, filled with the, under the control of the Spirit of God, comes and says, the owner of this belt is going to be tied and not treated very well in Jerusalem. What would everybody's automatic reaction to this be? You're not supposed to go to Jerusalem. Through the Spirit, they urged him not to go. And now this prophet comes and says, this is what's going to happen in Jerusalem. Yet Paul says, I understand this. I'm still supposed to go. What I want to do right now is I want to talk to you about the fact that I believe personally, as well as many people around the country that I talk to who have heard from God, I believe a judgment is coming on our country. It may happen this year. I believe that God in some way, in a way that will be very obvious that it is a judgment of God, is going to bring a judgment on the United States. And people I know who are prayer intercessors have been getting pictures, if you will, visions, if you will, of some of the things that are going to occur. But each of us need to be led of the Spirit as to how we are to respond or prepare or not prepare. I know of some people that are getting guns. I know of some people that are stockpiling food. I know of other people that are doing nothing. There's a tendency when we start to feel very strongly. I see some of you nodding your heads. You might even sense the same thing is happening too. There's this tendency when we hear something strongly from God, or we get a prior warning of what may be coming, to automatically assume how everybody else is supposed to respond. Are you hearing what I'm saying? There's a tendency to say, well, that means you need to do this, and you're not going to be prepared if you don't do this. And you've got Each of us need to be led of the Spirit as to how we are to be responding to the possibility of what may come. Do you understand? Even these Christians were convinced that God had said Paul was going to have a bad in Jerusalem, and they were right. They, though, assumed that he wasn't supposed to go. Paul said, I know all this. I'm still supposed to go. I don't know how it's going to manifest itself. I know personally how God has spoken to us as we pray about it as a family, how we are preparing for a very, we believe, a very soon judgment of God on the United States of America. How it plays out, what will be the actual act, I don't know. We believe that God has told us it's going to happen. We have prepared and we are preparing how God has told us. Some people would say, you're not doing enough. Others would say, well, if you really trust God, you shouldn't do it at all. And there's all these different ways that Christians automatically assume how God wants everybody else to act. You need to be fully convinced under the leadership of the Spirit what He's telling you. And be okay if your brother or sister sees it a different way. You understand? Because that happened even to Paul. Were they right? Yes. But they were wrong in the sense that he wasn't supposed to go. Paul believed that he was supposed to go. Questions, thoughts before we move back, back to Romans? Yeah, what does it mean in verse 4 that they, they were telling Paul through the Spirit? Right, that's a very good question. My, my best understanding of what this is, is the Spirit of God had told them about what was going to happen. Or, no. or given them an understanding that trouble was coming for right. Paul. I think they are... I think you could take this through the Spirit that the Spirit was saying not to go. I don't believe that that's what, what is the actual thing. I think this is a, through the Spirit, in other words, through the fact that the Spirit had told them trouble was going to happen in Jerusalem, they then urged Paul not to go. Do you see the slight difference? Humanness kicked in. Well, we, that's how I read it. You could easily read it that the Spirit was saying don't go, but I'm going to trust Paul's individual relationship where Paul would have heard that as well. But Paul seems to be, as they said, look at verse 14, when he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. Now, is there a chance that they heard God and he wasn't supposed to go? There is a chance that that's the possibility. Is there a chance that Paul disobeyed the Spirit of God and went anyway? That is a possibility. 
Jim Johnson's interpretation is that the Spirit of God had given them a warning of what was going to come. They assumed that it meant don't go. Paul said, I hear you, I believe you, I still think I'm supposed to go. Well, and because they knew, they were then, I'm sure, on their knees while he was there in a way they would not necessarily have been right. had they not been given that. Hopefully they didn't say, well, we told him not to. If he went to it, it's his own uh, fault. Uh-huh. You know? <laughs> well, they do. Well, so. and of course Christ knew. I mean, Christ was well aware of what he was to do. And he went forth and, and went. So I believe, just like you're saying, I believe there can be a foreboding. Which you can sense a foreboding, but mm-hmm. God doesn't necessarily mean for you to stop. In fact, I I think there was a sense when we went to Haiti the first time. There was definitely a foreboding there. There was a, with all the hurricanes and all the things that had happened and things that actually had been happening in Haiti too, they're not having government. There was a foreboding, and yet there was an urging too that we carry on and, and go. You hopefully are individually listening to the Spirit of God. Not making decisions on the pros and the cons or what someone else said. You need to be listening to what God's telling you. I like that that Paul says, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready for this. Mm -hmm. I'm ready for this. And I think about the fact that in all of those imprisonments, he had Roman soldiers guarding him day and night. Mm -hmm. At least one at a time. Maybe more than one at a time. And it wasn't the same guy all the time, you know. And I think, how many Roman soldiers Mm -hmm. came to know the Lord Jesus through Paul? Mm -hmm. Through listening to everything that he said and all the people he visited with in that house all that time in Rome. Not only do we have a whole lot of wonderful scriptures that Paul wrote while he was there, what about the personal impact that he had on those people? Yes, he paid a price. He eventually paid with his life for going. Um, But... I believe that he was within the will of God in all of that. And to be honest with you, we don't know which way it was. I'm sharing you how I believe it was. It could be either way. You could read that verse either way. So I'm glad you brought that up. That's a very good question. So the good news is we got a God that even if we miss it, when we think we're doing his will, he can still rearrange and line things up with his will, you know, and, and move from there. That's that's a wonderful thing about it. Okay? Now Go back to Romans 15, and I want you to look at verse 27. This actually was the first thing that jumped off the page when I just began reading this chapter to pray over how God would have me teach it. Paul's talking about the Jews and the the fact that they were going to the people in Macedonia and Achaia had been given money to them to the Christians in Jerusalem, and he said these Gentiles were pleased to do it. And indeed they owe it to them, owe it to the Jews, for if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. I'll read that again. If the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. Salvation started with the Jews. It was God's plan to reveal Himself to the nation of Israel. They were from there to pass on the good news. They weren't real good at that, but God's able to get it done anyway. But at the same time, salvation came through the nation of Israel. They are God's people. They are God's one God chose just by His sovereign act of choosing to make the, the Messiah through them. Uh, they are going to be an everlasting people, no matter how many nations have tried to wipe them off the face of the earth, even though they're the smallest nation, if you will, almost of all nations on the earth, even though Hitler's and everyone and Menajads have tried to uh, annihilate them, they still exist. Folks, God is sovereignly watching over Israel. If our great gift of salvation has come through these people, we owe it to them to be for them. The sad thing is, is there are denominations in our country right now who have turned their back on Israel. And actually there are denominations that are pushing for the Palestinian statehood and all this kind of stuff. It's, it's sad. It's not politically correct to say the things that I'm going to say, but I base everything I believe on what the Bible says, and the Bible says that that was a land given to those people, and it belongs to the nation of Israel. And if you divide it, you're going to suffer consequences, because the Bible says those who bless Israel, I'll bless. Those who curse Israel, I'll curse. 
And we as a nation, that's one of the many reasons why the judgment of God is coming on this nation. If we do not repent, one of the many reasons is we have, and don't, it's not political Obama, Bush. Bush has been a part of it just as much as Obama has been, of unfortunately dividing the nation of Israel and having them give up their land. And so I want you to put a, a little highlight on Psalm 122 and verse 6. Now this is what God told me this past National Day of Prayer. Again, hear what I just said earlier. That does not mean that what God told me is what y'all are supposed to do. But this year, when it was time to have the National Day of Prayer on May 7th, when everybody prays for our country and all that kind of stuff, I couldn't. I tried. And as I spent time praying throughout that day, I tried to pray for our country. And what God told me was, do not pray for the United States. Pray for Israel. And I spent that day praying for the nation of Israel and for the city of Jerusalem because of what is still going to come to them. And look at what Psalm 122 verse 6 says. It says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. I'm going to say it again. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. By the way, when is real peace this kind of peace that the Bible has us pray for going to come to Jerusalem. In the second coming of Jesus Christ. There's going to be a false peace for the Antichrist. He's going to break it after a three and a half year time period. We'll get into all that in the Revelation study. When when, when the Bible says pray for the peace of Jerusalem, it is not paying, pray, not praying for the peace talks. It's not praying that someone will come up with a good solution between the Palestinians and the Jews. This is praying for the return of Jesus Christ. When he comes to set up his literal kingdom on the earth, that's the only time real peace is going to occur. Oh no, you know what? Back when Jesus taught us the model prayer, do you remember at the beginning? Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What was the next part? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not only a picture of us letting him have lordship in our lives now, it's also a continual looking for his coming and setting up his kingdom on the earth. It's coming soon. It's coming very soon. We'll get into why I believe in the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. We'll get into all that stuff in our Revelation study starting next week. But for right now, I want you to begin. Don't stop praying for the the United States of America. I mean, there are times I can still pray for them now. On that day, God told me, don't pray for the United States. Pray for for Israel. Pray for the city of Jerusalem. But I'm going to ask you to see if God would have you begin, the scripture says to, to pray for the city of Jerusalem and pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for God's kingdom to come. As you watch the news, as you see what's going on, as you read about Israel and the Middle East and our president heading over there this week to go stand in Egypt and pass out olive branches to the enemies of Israel, it's going to get wild for us in the days to come. Because God's hand of blessing is being removed if it hasn't been totally already removed. And the judgment will continue to come. Folks, be praying for Israel right now. Be praying for their leadership. Be praying that they would turn their hearts to God. It's going to happen. So you're asking something in God's will. But pray that it would happen soon. Pray that it would happen sooner rather than later. Okay? So make that a matter of your prayer. And if you have a, a leading of the Lord to give to causes for Christianity in the nation of Israel, there are many ministries out there to support Jews and Christians and helping Jews come back to their homeland. There's a lot of stuff out there. Pray what God may have you do. But definitely, if the Bible is very clear, if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews spiritual blessings, we owe it to the Jews to share with them material blessings. If you don't have that, at least pray for them. Be praying for them. All right? Sure, go right ahead. He seems to be directing 26 and 27 mm-hmm. to the saints, the Jewish saints. Yes. And and yet, you're asking us to make a leap from the Jewish saints. No, well, no the leap to Israel. The, the leap from the Jewish saints is coming over in Psalm 122, verse 6, where it says, pray for the priests of Jerusalem. But here he's talking about the Jewish saints, Definitely. And we need to have a heart for the Jews and their people. But at the same time, we, we should not have a heart that just says, we're only going to pray for the Jewish saints, not for the nation of Israel as a whole. Do you understand? It would be wrong for me to say, well, I only love Christians. We have to have a heart for their, the people of Israel as well. Hopefully we're not just 
only caring about Christians in this world, in the Gentile world. We hopefully care about everyone. And we don't understand exactly how the Revelation teaches that the nation will turn back to God in the end times. And they will. And the Bible teaches us to be praying for that and be looking for that. So yes, here he's talking about they owe it to the Jewish saints because of what they've shared. But the reason I made that jump is because it's a scriptural tie. Paul said, if I remember back in our earlier study of Rome, Romans, he said, if I could go to hell and that would save Israel, I'd do it. Which is an amazing thing to think of Paul saying. If my going to hell would have Israel become saved, I'd do it. And so that's where the jump is coming from. Okay. I'm glad you asked, though. That's a good question. Let's jump on to chapter 16, unless anybody else has anything else that they want to deal with. All right. Chapter 16, verses 1 through 16. I'm going to read this quickly, and then we're going to come back to a couple of specific verses. And Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Centuria. Uh, so, some of those uh, translations might say deaconess. Uh, and to be honest with you, as people have wrestled with this over the years, there's a very strong chance that she had some kind of role as a deaconess, if you will, in that church. Um, uh, there is great debate, as you will, in different denominations on whether or not a woman could be ordained as a deacon and all that kind of stuff. We won't have time to get into that study right now. That's a whole lot bigger study. You just can't answer that with a quick answer. Um, but the thing is this. Let me just suffice it to say this word servant is more than just the fact that she was a servant. It appears that she had an office of some sort. Uh, how it played out, we don't know, but she had a role. She had a very important role in the church. And he's actually sending this letter with her to the church in Rome. She's the one carrying it. So, it says, I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been a great help to many people, including me. It says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. And oh, by the way, every time you see in the New Testament Priscilla and Aquila listed, Priscilla is always listed first. Mm -hmm. Again, we don't have time to get into that either. <laughs> all right? They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Greet my dear friend Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my relatives, who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Greet Amphilatus, whom I love in the Lord. And greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stachys. Greet Apelles, tested and approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my relative. Greet those in the household of Nar Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis and another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. Sorry, another, not and, another woman who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers with them. Greet Philogulus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send greetings. Now, we could take hours trying to break down who these people might be. And there's some interesting studies there. Not what I believe God wanted us to get into, because I'm not sure it would benefit us a whole lot. It would just be more of a, oh, that's interesting, but not really a good use of our time, uh, in my personal opinion, for what God wants us to do. So what I wrote down here in this section is this, is even though Paul's life involved much travel, he had many close friends in the faith. Have you noticed that? Paul's all over the map, yet he had very many close friends in the faith. I'm going to ask you to, I'm going to throw it out for discussion, any idea why, and oh, by the way, the answer is in what we just read. Any idea why he had so many close friends in the faith, even though he was here for about a year or two, or maybe only a couple of weeks or a month, and then he moved on? Why does he have so many close friends in the faith? Were many of them mentors for him? They met in homes. They met in homes, that's They're part of it. The mentor part, in some instances, yes. They're all in the Lord. In the Lord. They supported him. They supported him. He spent a lot of time traveling to different places, so he's going to meet a lot of people. Anyway. Right. Okay, the number part is the from the travel. Look real closely at verse 3. We talked about Priscilla and Aquila. They, I'm sorry, not verse 3, verse 4. They risked their lives for me. Look at verse 7. Who have been imprisoned. 
with me. Look at verse 10. Tested and approved in Christ. Let me kind of bring back to your mind some things that have happened in your lives over the years. If you, because they have been through much struggle together for the Lord, they became very, very close. If you look back over your life of your walking with the Lord, you might, they might not be here right now. They might live in another part of the country or the world. But if there are men and women that you have been through the fire together, and they walked you through a tough time in your life, these people are going to be close to you the rest of your life forever. And it was the trouble, it was the struggle you went through is what has knit you together. We've got a family that uh, um, is coming to visit us um, tomorrow night. They're coming in very late, husband and wife and five kids, and they're going to be staying at our house with us. So you don't want to camp with us. It's going to be have sleeping bags everywhere. But the cool thing is we've not seen them in nine or ten years. They live in South Dakota. But they were in the church when we were in the church in Chicago. And at that time had their first child while we were there. And it was, because of health and many other issues, it was a very, very trying time. But through that struggle, it knit me and Daryl and Kim together. And we are friends till Jesus comes back and beyond because of the tough things we went through together during that pregnancy. You think back. God will bring to your mind people. I'd encourage you to... Well, one of your days you just want to have a little quiet time with the Lord. Hopefully you're spending time with the Lord and you're not sure what to do. Pull out a piece of paper and kind of like Paul just did, list back people over the years that God has put in your path to encourage you or to bless you or you walk through stuff with them and just write their names down and pray for them. And thank God for what he did. It'll be a strong, strengthening time for you. This is a... Paul probably had a... He probably wasn't like us going, Oh, but don't forget somebody. Paul probably was just being blessed as he thought, Oh, man, that church of people in that area of Rome. Oh, I can think of this person and that person and this person and that person. Keep in mind, this is to the church in Rome, not to the people that meet in this one place. That's why he said, and to the church that meets in their home and all that. This is a group of people that he knew and had contact with in travels and trials. Think about David and Jonathan. And how Jonathan was there for David in the toughest times of his life. There are those people in your life as well. Thank God for them. And if you think back, you'll understand full well what he was doing here. Does this make sense? And, and he wasn't thinking about, oh, I might forget someone. Because it wasn't about the people. It was about the blessings that God had given him through if, the people. If, exactly. If somebody was sitting there reading this letter... And they said, he didn't mention me. They have was the their problem. Issue. That was their problem. That's their problem. But you know what? Don't we do that, though? A lot of times in church, oh, but don't forget somebody. You know, and we're all worried about offending. We all worry about pleasing and, and offending. You know what? If someone gets offended, I'm sorry, that's their problem. They're doing it for the wrong reason. They're doing it for the accolades and all. But I don't believe Paul was even doing this long of a list because of that. He could tell you what was going on in each of their lives, what was happening. So... And as I just read that list, I thought, man, all of a sudden to my mind came all these people that God had knit me together with because of that. And we're about to spend a fun week with a couple catching up with all that God's done in their lives. But we went through it together. So, Chapter 16, where are we out time-wise here? How are we doing? It's right we're about to do it. Good. Six, chapter 16, verses 17 through 27. And it's sad, but it's just the way life is that Paul had to, in the midst of all this, mm. warn them of the phonies and the people that are going to cause dissension in the church. I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I'm full of joy over you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. Alright, now before we go on, I just want to just stop there. and just Paul's really dealing with the fact that, as always, there's going to be those who come in and smooth talk, and they want you to follow them. And we're not even going to try to get into going down that road and naming names, but just be watching out for anybody that seems to want you to follow them instead of the Lord Jesus Christ. So just keep that in mind. That's going to happen in Christendom. It's been happening forever. It's going to happen until Jesus comes back. 
They're going to be those who are going to take this opportunity of people who are wanting to be taught, wanting to learn, and all of a sudden they're going to take advantage of that to have you become their disciples. If you hear him and say, I, I follow so-and-so, lovingly warn them of ever watching and following a person because I hope you enjoy what God does and, and what God does through me is effective for you and, and beneficial. But if you think Jim's the only one I listen to, you're in trouble because I'm going to let you down. I'm going to let you down. I'm just glad my wife comes to the Bible study because she lives with me. You know? But uh, uh, I'm just saying, be, he just says, be careful of those kind of people. That's what he's talking about here. But look at verse 20. I want you to explain to me verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. <laughs> Revelation, we're riding on his train for that last battle. <laughs> How in the world is the God of peace is going to crush Satan under your feet? Can anybody explain it to me? I, there's an answer. Without evil, without evil, there's peace. Right. That's part of it. Keep going. You were starting to go there. Go ahead. He's a God of justice and righteousness. And so he couldn't leave Satan unpunished. Oh, yeah. he's, he's got an well, Why did he call him the God of peace? He is. Who's he writing to? Rome. He's writing to the Christians in Rome. For us, folks, he is the God who's brought us peace. Peace on earth, goodwill to men on whom his favor rests. For those of us who have entered into that relationship covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, we are no longer fearing his wrath. We're no longer fearing his punishment. Perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment. For those of us who are okay with God because of Jesus and Jesus alone, we've been given this awesome gift, and what we deal with God is his peace. Now, he may discipline us for a season. He may shape us and mold us, and it's... It may seem unpleasant at the time, but it's for our best. The Bible teaches us very clearly, if you are His child through Jesus Christ, you're not going to deal with His anger. You're not going to deal with His wrath that has been totally taken care of in Jesus Christ. He loves you. He's the God of peace. Oh, by the way, the God that you know is peace is also going to crush Satan. Which is going to... And He's talking about the end. He's talking about the end here. And that's what He's talking about. But he's saying crush Satan under Feet. Yes. He doesn't need our feet. You can crush him anyways. But doesn't that make you feel pretty powerful to know that if you have God inside of you, you can crush Satan? Yes. He's crushing Satan through your under your feet. Yes. <laughs> because one day we're going to be glorified and exalted, and he's going to be in the pit. And boy, he wins for a lot right now. And he's winning, and he's going to he's going to amp it up. The Bible says in the Book of Revelation because he knows that his days are short. And he's begun to already. Has anybody else noticed how many killings there are that are all of a sudden the murder-suicides, the people jumping off bridges, the people that are just going in and shooting? And, has anybody noticed it's picked up a little bit? It's picked up a lot. And it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. But the God of peace is going to take care of it. And so you've got to hang on just a little bit longer until the end. And the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you, he says. Timothy, my fellow worker, sends his greeting to you as does Lucius, Jason, Sospiter, and my relatives. Uh, I, ter I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. Now, Luke was the one who wrote it, wrote the book of Acts for Paul. But here in the book of Romans, it was Tertius who actually penned this letter for Paul. Uh, Paul didn't really write his own letters. He would always speak them, and someone else would write them down. That's why in a couple of letters he said, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. That's why it's so big. I lean toward that the, the, the thorn in Paul's flesh was that his eyesight was never the same after that blinding light on the road to Damascus. Well, could it be, too, that he was a Pharisee and wasn't a scribe? Well, it could have been the fact that he was a Pharisee and not a scribe. But what I'm throwing out to you is this. There's a place in Galatians where he even said to them, you would have torn out your own eyes for me. If, if, it, if it were possible. And then he says, I'm writing this in my own hand. That's why it's so big. And Paul said, I prayed three times that this thorn in my flesh would be removed. And Paul said, I mean, God said to him, my grace is sufficient. My strength will be made known in your weakness. I lean toward that Paul's thorn. You can't prove it, so don't say, Jim says that's the way it is. But I lean toward that Paul's thorn was the fact that his eyesight was never fully the same after he had the blinding light in the Bible voice that knocked him off his horse when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And I restored his sight. It might not have ever been the same. It might not have ever been the same. 
Just get a little interesting. We're going to ask him one day, which would be good. And he'll say, that'd be business. But, uh, They're perfect now. Uh, that's right, exactly. <laughs> Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, send you his greetings. Erastus, who is the city's director of public works, and our brother Cordus, send you their greetings. Now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all nations might believe and obey him. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Do you see how Paul ends this letter? Mm. To him. To him. It's about him. God has used me to send this long, detailed, deep letter to you. But you know what? It's all about him. And look closely, we're going to wrap up with this. I'm going to read it one more time. Look what he says. Now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, you don't have to do it. He will do it. Stop trying to be a better Christian. Let him do it. According to the revelation of the mystery, hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all nations might believe and obey him. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, folks, we started back in January. Do you realize that? Started back in January. And our study through Romans meeting when I'm in town and not when I'm not. It's been a fun ride. It has been an awesome ride. So let's finish up by talking to the one who it's all about. So let's pray. Father, I thank you again that we could have this book end this way and that Paul would remind his readers and us uh, that we would be able to just remember it's about you. Lord, you've done so many things already through the study of Romans and what a joy it's been for me to just study and prepare and teach. And Lord, each of us, I believe you've been speaking as your word's powerful. Lord, I just thank you for what's going on and Lord, I just uh, pray that each of us would have that peace that comes from knowing that it's about you and that you're able to establish us, and that this is something you've been working on from ages past, that made known this mystery through the prophetic writings and the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now to you, the only wise God, may you be one who gets the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.